and welcome everyone to another Invent Right live stream. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm one of the co-founders here at Invent Right. We'll be spending, if you guys have enough questions, I'm going to be spending a full hour answering your questions about licensing. So just to make it clear, what we do is licensing, not venturing. Raise money. You don't need to hire employees. Existing distribution. So you license to is going to pay you royalties quarterly and it's going to be their money and their workforce and their existing distribution and they're really big and in tons of stores so that's good for you hopefully of course you can license to a smaller company but the benefit of licensing is to license to a big company so you can go big with your idea all right so let's jump in do some q a oh just at the beginning i'm actually going to remember to say this at the top of the hour for once and not Anything that I uh, share today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Um, the other thing that I'll say is don't really disclose um, anything in the chat that's not already publicly disclosed. Um, so don't talk about your invention specifically um, or anything like that. Don't make that public disclosure. You don't want to mess yourself up that way. All right. So um, let's just jump in here. Uh, Kevin says... Andrew, I was wondering about uh, candy that has a toy play element to them. How would you go about checking previous products? Would they be under a patent search or are they even patentable? Um, well, first of all, most products guys never get a patent. Okay. The vast majority of products, people don't file patents on them. So if you're just doing a patent search, you're not doing a market search. So um, Kevin's expanse, um, if so, if not, how would you protect your idea than just a PPA later down the road if it's part of a market, more like the novelty market where items come and go fast and protection isn't as relevant? So yeah, that's quite often true if it's kind of a toy candy thing with a play element. Um, it might not be that relevant. We did, Stephen and myself interviewed John Osher the inventor of um, the spin pop, which was a spinning lollipop. And it was a little, you press the button and then it spins. Like it's so hard to suck on a lollipop already. Fun product though. And he did very well with that. And then later he kind of used some similar technology. He was the first guy to create a truly cheap disposable electric toothbrush, which is now is really common, of course. I use a Sonicare toothbrush myself. But he, it was the Crest Spin Brush, and he licensed that to Crest for an insane amount of money. But um, a lot of a lot of uh, toy kind of candy ideas aren't going to hit the popularity of John Osher's Spin Pop because that was insane. Um, and they do come and go. And I think Kevin's bringing up a really good point. You're like you might see them in the market for a couple years, but then they disappear. So maybe that happened seven years ago, and now Kevin is wanting to study, doing a good job, wanting to study the marketplace to see what is or isn't in the market um, to see if his product is new and how it would fit in and all that. But what about that stuff that was done seven years ago? And so um, you can find stuff sometimes on blogs and different places. So you're just not going to know everything that's ever been done in the candy toy area, Kevin, and you just need to kind of go for it. And you might come across somebody who's like, oh, I, I saw this. This was done 10 years ago and, you know, it didn't do that well or it went really well, but I think that's already been there, done that. So um, you just won't always know. So, But you should definitely know what's currently in the marketplace, Kevin, and then show it to them. But if they're in the kind of candy toy business, you know, they might know about stuff that you didn't know about. And you can do searching and you can, um, you know, uh, become part of a association or something like that where the, you can see stuff that was done in the past. I don't typically think they do that. But um, you can find some of those things out there, even though they were done a while ago. And the best way to do that is Google Images, but you will never find everything. So kind of like just being in the business for a while, you know what's been done, you know what hasn't. So Kevin, if you stick with the candy toys, you're going to get more familiar with stuff that's been done in the past, but you're just not going to know 100% for sure. So, you know, if it's not currently in the market, you know, I would say go for it. Um, 
Leon said, I submitted to 10 toy companies. How do I find more to submit to? Well, you know, so one of the things that our coaches guide our students to do is make their list of companies. And 10 isn't bad, but people will typically have a really anemic list of like two or three of the biggest companies and nothing else. And so, um, you know, most of our students for most projects are reaching out to 20 to 40 companies, you know. So it's pretty easy, Leon, the basics is you look at retailers and then you look at manufacturers selling at those retailers. If you don't make a big list of retailers, you're going to have a smaller um, pool of manufacturers or brands to pull from. So people always limit themselves with the retailers, larger list of retailers, larger list of companies selling at those retailers, you know, and um, people almost limit themselves to um, I, need, I need to find a company doing more or less the exact same, very similar thing, but it could be kind of in the same space. Like when you go down to the sh to the store, if they would be on the same shelf or the same aisle, that's probably good enough. They don't have to be doing something exactly like or very, very close to what you're doing. A lot of people limit themselves that way as well. But I find that that's one of those things that um, to make your list of companies, if it's not taking you two to 10 hours to do, you're probably not doing it right time consuming and people won't really do it right and when a coach which i can't do with you leon on here is talking to you like oh i see your product okay it's like this well you could do kind of adjacent stuff over here and over there and then man you the right retailers to find the companies and so that's where you know coaching is really really helpful but uh yeah you should reach out to more than 10 10 is enough for most projects definitely uh deidre said uh, looks like she has something nice to say, and then it jumped up. There we go. Hi, Andrew. Words cannot express how grateful we are to you and Stephen. Andrew, if my product has been launched a company, can I still send my product to other companies? It hasn't been licensed yet. You know, I don't really know what you mean by that, Deidre. If, if your product has been launched by a company, okay, I guess not a company you licensed to, so you came up with an idea, and then they launched it. I'm not really clear on that. Can I still send my product to other companies that hasn't been licensed yet. I So I don't know. Um, you know, if if your exact product came out with another company, point of difference, well, then I think you're pretty much done. Um, if you're saying you licensed it and can you still approach other companies, the answer is it depends on what's in your licensing agreement. If it was stated that they only have these geographies or only these distribution channels, only this version of the product, but you can license another one, well, then you can reach out to more companies. But it depends on what's in your licensing agreement. So I'm sorry if I'm giving such a broad answer. I'm just not really clear. But either way, that's going to be helpful for everybody. Um, I saw this as kind of a trip. I've never had this question before, uh, Dave. Hi, Andrew. I filed a non-publication request when I filed my patent. So this will be educational for you guys. So this isn't a provisional patent, guys. It's when you file a full utility patent. When you file a full utility patent, your attorney is going to file it. We advise people to file their own provisionals, but it's kind of craziness to try to file your own patent. It's, there's so many little things involved to file your own patent. To file your own provisional patent, yes, but to file your own patent. So I'm assuming an attorney is, is going to submit uh, a patent. And so when, they, when you file a utility patent, um, after 18 months, it takes one to three years for the patent office to get back to you, typically. And what they're going to get back to you with is what's called office actions. And I like to put it in layman's terms and say it's basically an argument between or debate between your patent attorney and the patent examiner as to what claims you're going to get. Because you're trying to claim, get protection, all these things, and they're only going to give you certain things. Nobody gets all their claims. And if you do get all your claims, your patent attorney didn't try hard enough. They should be rejecting something because then they were they were going for super easy claims. And some inventors that are green, they're like, oh, I'm so happy. I got all my claims. I'm like, something doesn't smell right there. The attorney maybe just wanted to get that done and you're not getting any strong protection. But anyway, I'm getting distracted here. So when you file a utility patent, a full utility patent, not a provisional guys, a full utility patent, after 18 months, it goes public, regardless of whether or not patent office got back to you and you're the examiner at the patent office and your attorney had an argument about what claims you're going to get. It goes public. And I, as a funny note, sometimes I talk to inventors and this will be educational for you guys too. 
oh, I'm so worried. I found like my exact product and oh my God, they're covering everything. They're so well protected. I can never get around that. And I look at it and I'm like, that's not an issued patent. That's a pending patent because it got published after 18 months. Look, and that's what they're hoping to get, which I doubt they'll get all that stuff. And they're like, oh, really? I didn't know that's how it worked. So what Dave is saying here, which I almost never see inventors do this, Dave filed a request for it not to be published after 18 months, which you can do. What you do when you do that, my understanding is you compromise your foreign filing rights. So then you can no longer fall, file in foreign countries if it's not published after 18 months, regardless of whether or not you've had office actions yet. So that's what Dave did, which is a very, very unusual, but it's something you can do. Um, if I let my real, real RPA, real patent application go abandoned, will my patent application be published? And the answer to that is I have no freaking idea. I mean, it's already kind of uncommon to file a request not for it to be published because people don't want to compromise their foreign filing rights. But um, I don't know. I don't know. You request for it not to be published. And I don't know. You ask your patent attorney that, Dave. I, I just don't know. That's such an oddball question, but a fascinating question. And I don't have the answer to it. Um, but thank you for asking the question. You're like, thanks, Andrew. You didn't give me the answer. But everybody else benefited from these like quirky things they probably weren't aware of with publication and, and, and all that stuff. So, um, But you're going to need to get that question from somebody else because I don't have it right here on the, the meeting. Um, okay. Let's see what else we got here. Okay. Ward said one. Hi, Andrew. Can I hire a specialist from your team as required without purchasing your entire program? And two, what are the ways to determine who the manufacturer is from looking at a product. Okay. All right. Um, so can you hire our team? No, when we when we help you, we coach and mentor you. And you will need the six months of the coaching program because you're going to fall down. You're going to only have one question. And then you only have one question more, one question more, one question more. If you haven't licensed products before, you need a coach to guide you through that process. So no, you need to do the full program without a doubt. Um, we do have something called a kickstart call. It's a one-time thing where you do a 90-minute session. It'll be with either our head coach or our negotiation coach, Paul. It's a one-time thing. And they will answer any questions you have. And then if you sign up with a full program, they'll, they'll credit that full amount towards the program. Um, but I would say it's amazing the... A lot of people have no intention of signing up with the full program. They do it and they're like, wow, that was amazing. So I think about 60% of the people that do our kickstart calls, it's not on our website. So you'll have to book a, a meeting with one of our advisors. Just click on contact us and book one and they can set you up with that. And But 60% of the people that do kickstart calls end up going with the full program. And the other 40% are like, wow, that was so amazing. It's not a tease. We're not like just trying to give you a little info so you have to sign up with the program. That's BS. But we don't do that. Um, it's really good, solid 90 minutes. So you can do that. It's a one-time thing. We don't do like one call, then another call, and oh, well, I sign up for one more call. We haven't found that to be effective at all. So we don't do that. But you could do that. Um, and the people that even don't sign up, you're like, wow, that was super amazing. You get a lot in 90 minutes. So that's something that you could do, Ward. Um, and the other part of the question, what are the ways to determine who the manufacturer is from looking at a product? Um, Wow, man, that's not hard. Um, if you have the name of the product, um, first of all, it might be on the back of the package. If you're on the internet um, and that particular website, quite often you'll see you're on Target or whatever, it's usually going to say the name of the company on the listing. If it doesn't say it on the listing, you can copy the name of the product, paste it into Google, see what other sites it shows up on, which is a good thing to do anyway, to see where they're selling the product. And, and then maybe another website will list the name of the manufacturer. Also, sometimes, you know, if you haven't bought the product, you can zoom in on the picture and you can see it's like manufactured by so-and-so. You can see who the name of the company is. Also, when you Google the name of the product, you're probably going to come across their company website. So it's pretty freaking easy most of the time to figure out who the company is. If you can see one of their products, that's not 
usually hard. Sometimes what confuses people is when it's a distributor and usually that means they're a smaller company, but not always. And there it says distributed by, but it doesn't say who it's manufactured by. Um, so sometimes that can make it a little bit more confusing. I don't have time to go into that now, but, um, but yeah, just keep, keep looking, man. Um, rarely am, are we as a coach, not able to help a student figure that out. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, Alexandre, when should we pivot to another idea? Thank you, Andrew, for your precious time again. You're welcome, Alexandre. Um, when you get no's from all the companies, um, well, first off, once you get good at this and you get experience, if you can, try to be working on two or three projects at once, not just one. It really helps with the anxiety when people are new and you're just sitting around waiting for some companies. You get start another project, then you're following up on project older project. But when you get no's from everybody, absolutely everybody, that would be maybe the time to put it in the closet, um, but not the garbage can. And so then you can pick it up six or eight months later, send it to everybody again, and maybe some new companies. And the person before, they may, people trip out on this, the marketing manager may have liked your product. You're like, well, Andrew, why didn't they respond then? Because they're too damn busy. So they may have liked your product, but they gave this response, not at this time, not a right match for us. And because they're just too busy. And once they engage with you and show interest, then they know you're not going to let up. But they got four or five projects. They're inundated with email. They got all this stuff to do. And they didn't want to give you an inkling. They liked it. And that's why it really makes a lot of sense six or eight months later to send it to all the same companies. Now, if the company said, for these reasons, we can't do it, then you can't fix it. Don't resubmit to them. That's obnoxious. But if they gave you kind of generic no, which is extremely common, guys, to get these generic no's, um, you know, reach back out six or eight months later, start working on another project and don't give up on it if you really believe it. If you want to make some tweaks to your sell sheet or whatever. So um, I get students like, they're like, oh, Andrew, haven't licensed yet. And I'm like, damn, you got like four projects there. I'm like, how long has it been since you worked on that one? I talked to this one woman the other day and she's like two years. I'm like, that's a cool product. Like I'm shocked. And she got traction on with two companies. I said, blast it back out there to everybody you already sent it to and some new ones. It's the easiest thing to do, you know, because you've already got their emails and you've already got your sell sheet. So you may not. So I'm not going to say if you get 30 no's from all, all the companies that you should give up on it. I'd say put it in the closet for a bit, work on something else and bring it back out of the closet. But do not forget about it, because one of the easiest things to do is just to resend all those same companies. And Steve and myself are the only people that give this advice along with our coaches. And it freaking works. And I wouldn't say that we haven't been doing that for 21 years. I only started giving that advice maybe, I don't know, maybe nine years ago. And I was just trying to get some inventors that were like, oh, I can't license my product. And I, I couldn't get them to move on to their, their product. I said, well, don't throw it in the garbage can. Put it in the closet. Start working on their project. And then just reach back out in a little bit in like half a year or so. And people started licensing stuff that way. I was just trying to get them to work on another project because it's like, how long are you going to cry about not licensing this one project and then just not move on to license another one? Licensing is not about one idea, people. It's about multiple ideas and a lot of companies on every idea. So um, I was just trying to get them to move on with other projects by saying, OK, your baby's not ugly. You can resend it back out. And so and then we started getting people licensing stuff that way. So we haven't been telling people to do that for 21 years. We're like, oh, you got to know from 30 companies, you're done. You're done with that. Move on. But um, I I've you know, we decided that 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 is not true. And um, so that's hopefully that's very encouraging for you. Um, and also, you know, Alexandria, I'm bringing up the concept that once you get experience and you know how to do this, we don't see as many inventors outside of InventRight that aren't being coached by us get to this point. But, you know, you could be working on multiple projects at the same time. It's totally okay. And it keeps you busy. So you got all these ions and traction over here, but nothing's happening over here. It's not upsetting you. But then suddenly, months later, something pops over here with the older project. So there's a lot to be said for having multiple projects in a pipeline. At the same time, when you're new to this, is it a good idea? Not so much. You, people kind of get overwhelmed. You know, we have a rule when people are new. 
um, that they only work on one project. But then once they get the calls in and emails start start to get them in, not be done with it, then they can work on another project because now they experience the process. And now when they work on project number two, they feel more comfortable with it. But we've had students go, I want to work on these three projects out of the gate. And we're like, that's you're going to feel overwhelmed. That's not if you want to work on the first one real and get through it really fast because you're that gung ho and you just get the calls in. you don't have to get feedback from everybody yet. But then great. Then put another project in your pipeline. You'll go faster than if you try to come out of with three out of the gate and you don't know what the hell you're doing. You know, that's going to overwhelm you. So big advocate at working on multiple projects, but not so much when you're brand new. And then you end up kind of playing a waiting game sometimes on things. But, you know, um, yeah, there's always something to do usually. Uh, and like I said, once you got most of the calls and the emails in, is that an appropriate time to start working on another project? Yes, just don't neglect the older project. That's what I always tell our students. Um, Nathan said, hi, Andrew, I got a question. Three companies are interested in my idea. How, how to tell, how to, how do I tell the other two that I'm going into contact with the other and keep good relationship? Okay. So three companies are interested. Okay. So this is very common. And some of you guys watching might be surprised like, damn, Nathan, you got interest from three companies. We see that all the time. And Nathan, I'll give you the same advice that we give our coaching students. You're going to move forward with everyone as if the others don't exist. You're not going to mention the other ones. You're not going to talk about the other ones. If you kiss and tell with one and go, oh, well, I'm talking to these others and this is what they said. No, no, no. Then they, then the company you're working with is not going to trust you. You should not kiss and tell and you should not try to, you didn't say this, but I invented her saying, well, I'm going to play them against each other. Hell no. They naturally fall off. So to be at the a later stage of interest and negotiations with multiple, that's unusual. Initially, where you are, it's actually very common. And you move forward at everyone as if the other one doesn't exist. And you do not talk to the others. If they ask you, you say, yeah, of course, I'm shopping it around. But you do not say this company's interested, that company. It's not going to help you. It's only going to hurt you. And that's not what most inventors think. They're, they, they're going to play them against each other. That's, that's so much BS. Don't do that. Um, so that's not going to hurt your relationship. It'll help it. Now, if you get really, really far, okay, it can get dicey, but that's, it happens so infrequently. So if we see it happening infrequently with, when we have a negotiation coach that's guiding them, it's probably fairly unlikely you're going to get to the tail end of a deal, um, with multiple companies. So talk to them all. All right. Uh, Mariana saying, you know, how can she come up with more companies uh, for her kitchen and houseware product? It's really, you know, when we talk about it, a coach gets on with a student and they look at they look at the let's say it's this coffee mug. They look at the product. Yeah, a little shameless advertisement for invent right there. Right. Uh, they look at the product and they go, OK, here's how you can expand it. So it's a skill. It's a methodology. And, you know, without seeing your product, Mariana, and, and the other person that was asking earlier, I can't specifically guide you on how to do that. You know, you, I need to know your product and you're not going to disclose that on this chat, of course, because this is public. Um, hi, Andrew, J. Bell here. Once the agreement is signed, what type of and how frequent is communication between the licensor and the licensee over the next year? It can vary dramatically. I mean, some companies want you to be super involved, like like the range. Like they want you to be super involved, or like they're asking you, "Do you like this color? Do you what do you think? Well, we want to send you the prototype and tell us what you think." And that's that's extreme, like super involvement, right? And then you got the other side is like, you know, we don't need you. Hey, we'll 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 call you if we need you. And but even with those companies, if like you came up with a new version of the product on top of the competition or something like that, they still want to hear from you extremes most of them are somewhere in between so you definitely don't want to pester them um, you just want to know what their next steps are and where they are and you want to offer constantly offer constantly you want to offer help where you believe you can so if a product launches and you see something else come in the market and you're like eh, it's going to be a little competition for ours and you got a new version you want to show it to them you know or you want to have a little tip here or there 
Um, but some of them, I mean, if you're like going to argue with them about them wanting to make it pink and you want to make it purple, um, not good. You know, trust them, you know. Um, so the amount of communication, it's 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 not that much because they've taken it on and they're going to handle the manufacturing, the distribution, the sales, the money, the, the everything. And so you're there to help them if you see them struggling. So if they are, they launch it in a way that's not good, you know, then you, you might offer them some feedback. Maybe they want feedback before that. They want your feedback. It's going to vary dramatically. So, um, but you're not, if you're talking to them every week, something's really wrong. You're being a pest unless they ask for the help or it, but you should not be checking in with them. They do not have time for that, like constantly. And when you do, it should always be to help. It shouldn't be to nag them. Should always be to help. Um, so it's going to vary dramatically depending on the, the the product and the company and the relationship. So you want to kind of like have discussions with them. Uh, your your marketing manager that's in the company, like what kind of help do you want from me? I think I could help here and there. Are you open to that? Or just have a conversation, and they'll all be different. They will all be different, but. Um, you're not starting a business with them. You're giving them a product. They're going to plug it into the God knows how many products they have. And it, that's a great thing because it's a machine. And, you know, corporate America, some companies may not be that creative or the people in the companies because corporate America can kind of stifle creativity. And that's what you have that they don't have. But you know what they have is organization and they have a machine and they're very good at logistics and all this stuff. So for you to be poking your nose in there every two minutes, not good, but um, it can be very beneficial to help them, uh, especially when they're it's still in the works for launching it, definitely. And to be kept in the loop, what I would say is try to be kept in the loop, um, but ask permission and ask what you they think would be appropriate, you know. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Okay, lost my place here, guys. Sorry. Okay, J Bell was the last one. <laughs> Spunky Monkey said, "We love your disclaimers and non legal advice." <laughs> Thank you, Spunky Monkey. Uh, I feel weird selling those handles, but they, they've been attending for quite some time now. Uh, let's see, Donna, how do you angle for a better royalty percentage if more than one company is interested in licensing? Um, so first off, Donna, you're under the misperception that it's about the royalty percentage and it's not. You could get a great royalty percentage if they're not gonna sell much volume, what's the point? So it's three things. It's the royalty rate, it's the price of the product, is it a 99 cent product? or is it a $500 product and the volume they're gonna sell. So you can get a killer royalty rate, but if they're gonna sell hundreds of thousands of units than another company, you have to analyze that. So when you have a deal on the table, is the royalty rate. You analyze the royalty rate, the price of the product and the volume they can sell. The volume they could sell being what you interview them about the most, okay? What are they gonna do with it? I've talked to inventors outside InventRight, like cut a licensing deal. It just blows my mind. Like I think they were so excited about closing a licensing deal. And nine times out of 10, when I see inventors do this, they go, they never launched my product. And, and I've talked to some inventors that, that, where that was the case. And I say, uh, well, so where do they sell? And the inventor literally couldn't tell me. I'm like, what are you talking about? You did a licensing deal with a company and you don't know where they sell. That's part of the negotiation. That's part of the agreement. And they just signed the agreement that they got from the company. Never in our 21 years have we ever told an inventor ever to sign the licensing agreement they first got from the company, ever. There's always a bunch of stuff that, so let's get into that a little bit. That's a little, little insider um, look. 
we get some really funky licensing agreements, stuff that's actually not a licensing agreement. Sometimes their, their general counsel at the company will do it. Sometimes they get some patent attorney to do it. And maybe they've done a few licensing agreements, but what they do is patents. And we get stuff and Paul and I look at it. Paul's our negotiation. He looks at it most of the time, but I've looked at some of them. And he's like, this isn't a licensing agreement, but we don't care. As long as we can stuff all the important stuff in there, it's a conversation. So, you know, you get these where it's just missing so much stuff. And then the inventor's like, are they trying to screw me? And we're like, no, they're trying to move the deal forward. They just don't know what they're doing, you know, and they, they think this is a licensing agreement, but there's so many important things missing. So Paul will tell them what to say back to the company and the company will start putting that stuff in. And it started out as this terrible agreement and with so much important stuff missing. And then we just stuff it in. We're like, okay, that's good. And then other times with some companies, we'll get like, they did a lot of licensing deals and it's just a beautiful licensing agreement, but there's a bunch of stuff that needs to be debated. So never do we get them this, like this looks perfect. There's always something missing. Um, there's always something important missing, always. So guys, if you're doing this on your own, never ever um, just sign a licensing agreement because I guarantee you it doesn't have everything that's in there. doesn't mean they're trying to screw you. The attorney for their company is like, I want to give a little leg up to our company. Well, we're here to give a little leg up to our students. Okay, that's just the deal. Also, be very careful about going, oh, I got this contract. So, well, first off, most inventors don't get to a contract because they mess up the discussions to get to the contract. If you're under the impression that you get interest from a company, and you're going to give me a contract right away. That's so not true. You're interviewing more than they are you. You're putting the deal points together so that you can get ready to have them send you a contract. And getting from initial interest to contract is so much more important than from the contract to close. That's where inventors mess it up, going from initial interest to contract. Now, let's say you did get a contract. Where inventors mess up there is they think, well, well, first off, they think they call their patent attorney. And never do this, guys. Don't have a patent attorney write a licensing agreement for you or review it or discuss it with you. If if they, they do patents, they don't, if they did like five licensing agreements or two in a year, they are not the right person to be doing that. I know you know them, but they're not the right person to be doing that. So they go, so then they maybe they realize, oh, I need a licensing attorney. Don't do that either. So when you get a licensing attorney, they'll typically try to nitpick the deal to death to get more billable hours. And they start fighting with the other company and their attorney. And before you know it, you pissed off the company. They're still going to send you a bill for thousands of dollars. And then the deal is dead because they try, they're trying to fight for you. So if you have this impression, like I'm going to get an attorney to fight for me, bullshit, wrong attitude. Our negotiation coach, Paul, is trying to go back and forward in a very friendly fashion. And it's extremely strategic. He might have one of our students go back to the company like, why don't we go back to them with these three terms, which almost everybody agrees to. Then we'll hit them up with these more complicated terms. I'm, I hate to say it, and you would think that that's what a licensing attorney would do because they're supposed to help you close the deal, but they don't. most of them, they don't really do that. They, they're kind of trying to fight for you and go too far the other way, just like companies do sometimes, to get unreasonable things for you and not explain things to you. And then all the while they're billing you, you know? And so don't think you want somebody to fight for you. So I really went off on a tangent on that, but I think you guys um, all benefited from that. Let me see if I get back to who was asking that. Okay. Yeah. Donna said, how do you angle for a better royalty percentage if more than one company is interested? It it's, doesn't matter that more than one company is interested. You negotiate with each one, the best agreement you can. And you're not just blurting out, and I, I've been saying this a lot on anything public we do that's not with our students. Just because you heard Stephen and I say that a common royalty is 5%, never say that to a company. You have plenty of students that got 6 7 or 8% or something like that. And it's it's you don't want to do a deal, go, great, we agreed on 8%. Okay, let's sign. Bullshit. You know, I, why am I swearing so much today? Sorry, normally I don't swear. But um, maybe to wake you guys up if you're falling asleep. But um, that's not what you want to do. You want, you, you don't want to just, you want to find out what are their plans for the product? Talk about the product, work out the details of the product, you know, and, oh, they're going to be, oh, it's going to be in Walmart. Oh, okay. And it's going to be here and there. Oh, okay. Or, oh, you know, I had this one um, student and they said, oh, it's going to be a Walmart. And then later they realized, oh, wait a minute, they're just going to put on walmart.com to test it. You need to know 
what they're going to do with this launch and get as much information as you can. Because if you don't put the royalty rate, the price of the product and the volume that can be sold together, you can't figure out what the deal is. Okay. So you need to do that. Um, so great question, Donna. Uh, Douglas said, hi, a well-known company in my field lists a policy that all ideas submitted become their property. Should I skip contacting them? I think you pretty much answered your own question, Douglas. I don't see that that often, but I have seen it sometimes. And it kind of boggles. I don't mind you asking, but it boggles my mind that why, why do you need to ask? They're, they're telling you how they feel. Um, one company that I don't mind saying it was Simple Human, the ones that do the electric garbage cans. And it said that they own anything that you submit in perpetuity forever. I'm like, why would anybody submit? Why do you even have that up there? You know, it's, it was just r ridiculous. So, but I don't see that very often. But if you see any submission agreement that says that, that's why you need to read the submission agreements, guys. You know, whenever I have a student that comes back to us saying, is this submission agreement okay to sign? I go, I'll send it back. I go, please read it three times. And tell me all the things you think might be a problem because they don't learn anything if I don't do that. And then I'll look at it and give you my opinion. Like, I want you to have read it. You know, just send it to your coach and go, is this okay? It's like, did you read it yourself? You know, because that's the way you learn. And then you start to like see them and you start to see red flags. But I'll say a lot of submission agreements, they'll, they look nasty, but they're not. Now that is nasty saying we own whatever you send us, of course. But it's like, sometimes they say, oh, whatever in the way of intellectual property we own is what we own, whatever you own is you own. We don't know what you're sending us yet. So we can't agree to keep it confidential. A lot of members freak out about that, but it's totally okay. So, you know, because you filed your provisional patent application, you've got your protection, you got your date. Now, if they filed something before you did, well, then that's what they did. That's perfectly fine, you know. Um, so let's see what else we got here. Yeah, but you should skip con contacting them, Douglas. They say they're going to anything you send. Now, part of the reasons why people um, are tripping out on that is when, when you when you know how to make your list and you have this nice big list of like 20 30 40 companies you're not getting all upset that one company has a terrible submission policy and skip over them because hey i got others you know but when it's like you only have three companies and they're your favorite and one of them has a good submission policy just just you didn't get wounded they didn't do anything terrible to you they're they're doing you a favor they're letting you know they're not interested in your ideas they got overzealous attorney. Maybe there's people in the company that are actually cool, but their attorney's a dick. And that's the, what he said that the company had to do. And some uninformed executive said, okay. Maybe they got screwed by an inventor that was paranoid. So they ripped them off. And they're like, well, this is scary. We don't want to do this anymore. You know? Um, so, you know, who knows why they're doing what they do, but they didn't need to do it that way. You know, and that's pretty unusual. But you do see them. So read the submission agreements. Um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, okay. Alexandria said live. Okay. Okay. That's more of a. Alexandri said he's always late. I don't know why that is, Alexandri. I mean, there is a delay, I believe, of like 90 seconds or so. But I haven't anybody else tell me they have that problem, Alexandri, so I'm not really sure what you mean. Um, Leon said, I submitted to 10 toy companies. How do I find more companies to submit to? Okay, we kind of answered that. Um, Richard said, what if you have an add-on idea for an existing item and they are then the only one to talk to. All my eggs will be in one basket. Yeah, I, I love, it sounds like you've been watching us, Richard, because if you have, if your product, I talked to an inventor this morning, not one of our students, and he had something for one company. It couldn't be for anybody else. What's, the, you know, you can do that, but it's a giant time suck. You're going to file a PPA and do a sell sheet for one company? So, you know, if this is an add-on item, and it's only for that company. Now, a lot of times when inventors tell me that, I look at the product, and I'm like, no, that could I could see you tweaking that and be for a ton of other companies. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. 
And so that's the case sometimes. Now, the person I talked to this morning, that was not the case. They had a very, it was a, it was a web idea and it was only for one particular high tech social media company. I'm like, you know, I said, go ahead and go for it because he'd already filed a PPA and he had a nice sell sheet. But I'm like, wow, you're really not playing the numbers game there. So I would try, sometimes it's tempting. You see this one product and you know you can help the company. And it's okay if you want to show that to them. But then before you even start working on it, go, could I tweak this and send it to a bunch of other companies if they aren't interested? And if the answer is no, it's probably not wor worth working on, you know? Um, so that's that's my answer, Richard. You kind of already answered that. I think you've been watching us because you kind of already said that. Why do I have all my eggs in one basket with one company? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, Oh, okay. Raul, I, I'm glad you asked this question. Raul says, hi, Andrew, what's the usual turnaround time for students to license a product after joining? I'm asking for financial planning purposes. So um, Raul, if you join InventRight, you should be able to not license the product and still be fine financially. I don't want anybody like not paying their utility bill because they didn't license the product. Because with licensing, it's not like we're teaching you to sell tchotchkes on eBay or put it up on Etsy and make a few bucks here and a few bucks there. It's all or nothing deal. That company may be selling 10,000 units a year, 50, 100, quarter million, half a million units. It depends on the price of the product, what it is, of course. But And so it's an all thing. You're going to be earning those royalties or you're going to be earning nothing if you don't license it. So you shouldn't be relying on income from licensing a product. Some people license their first, some people license their second or third or fourth product, you know? And if we can teach you to spend only 75 bucks on a provisional, a few bucks on a virtual prototype and a sell sheet, so you can you have the financial bandwidth to work on as many projects as you need before you license one. But, you know, I, I can't guarantee it's it's dependent on how good your ideas are too. You know, when you're when you're getting coaching from a coach, you know, we will tell you like, okay, Let's, let's study the marketplace. And if a product, we're not going to have you work on a lump of coal. If we're like, this product doesn't make sense. This product over here makes more sense based on these other products. We'll help you evaluate the products that make sense. And we won't help you work on products that don't. But it's going to be, a, to a certain extent, how a, a factor of how good your ideas are too, right? Um, so ex I would say expect to earn nothing. I don't want you counting on income like, oh, I know that I'm going to get a check, a royalty check within 14 months or something. There's no knowing anything. Sometimes people license their first product. Sometimes it's their fourth. But if people keep going and they're smart about how they pick their projects, I see people getting more business-like about their projects on like their second or or, or third project, always the second project, pretty much. First product, people are a little bit more emotional. They're picking ideas out of emotion or just because they came up with it and they can't let it go. And then I have other students that are like, I could work on any of these five products or any of these 10 products. Coaches love that because it can help you evaluate each one. So I would not count on that income. Um, I would say as far as sometimes I get people that are like, I want to do this full time and I want to quit my job. And I'm like, great. I think that's a great goal. And I think that's your goal. I'd like to see you license two, maybe even three products before you quit your day job. Because you never know when the royalties, you could be earning 100K a year in royalties on this one product, but you never know when it's not relevant in the marketplace and the sales go to zero overnight. So if you have a couple products licensed and you're going to quit your day job, then you know if the income stops from one, you still have it from the other, and then you're working on others. So that's my advice. If you want to make a career of licensing products, you definitely can. And if you want to make a career of licensing products, I would give yourself, you know, two years to do that, you know, to make a career of it, you know, and you could be doing it part time now, but, you know, you get a few successes and then you're like, oh, I got the income coming in. Steve and I are very conservative with that. We don't sell get rich quick. We're not telling people they're going to earn money overnight. And, you know, even if you license something today, you know, for most deals, like it's going to be a year before you start to earn royalties. Yeah, you get some upfront money to pay for the patent, stuff like that. But top loading the deal and asking for a bunch of upfront money, top reason, top way to kill a licensing contract, top way to insist. I, I talked to this inventor once and he was all pissed. Um, he said, oh, I went down from half a million to a quarter million. And I and they got and I don't they stopped talking to me and I don't know why. I'm like, because you're nuts. You know, you, you could, 
you could be working on a product that could e that could be earning easy, let's say, 150 in royalties. So over five years, what is that? That's six. That's that's three quarters of a million dollars. Okay, um, over five years. For 50k up front, that is way too much, and they won't pay. So you're always going to earn more on royalties on the back end. Because with some of these products, they're spending hundreds of thousands just to launch the product. They're risking all their money. You're risking nothing. They have to hand it back to you if they fail. So for you to ask a bunch of upfront money, stupid, 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 doesn't make sense. Don't do that, guys. Um, the only time that it does make sense, it, and don't think that you should go ahead and do this, because you know, because then I'll get upfront money. If you've been venturing it and selling it yourself, and you have distribution in ten thousand stores and inventory of ten, of course you're going to get upfront money. Because you've got it already set up. But to do all that, especially right now, is absolutely insane. If these large manufacturers you're licensing to are having supply chain issues and getting stuff made overseas, can you only imagine what kind of problems you would have right now and even elsewhere? So don't think like, oh, if I sell it myself, I'll get more royalties and then I can sell my company. Yeah, you, you could if you got distribution in 10,000 stores, but most people don't have that. And it's not necessary at all to do a licensing deal. Um, let's see. So that was, was that Donna's? Uh, no, that was Douglas. Oh, okay. No, no, that was, uh, let me see. Let me lose, lose track here. Uh, uh, Raul, Raul was asking that. He was saying, how long can I expect to get a licensing deal? And I can't answer that, you know? Depends on how hard you work and the product. And are you doing and saying the right things? We can guarantee that with our coaches that you're doing and saying everything right. Um, but anyway, uh, Paul said, have you used a licensing deal by submitting a similar product uh, too soon to the same company and the company decided to go with the second idea instead of the first one? Oh, interesting. Um, First off, I would never do that. If you've got interest from a company, um, oh, okay. So he's saying he, he sent it to a company. I, I think this is theoretical. No, I've never seen this. But he sent a product to a company. Then he shows them a similar one. And then um, the same company decided to go with the second idea instead of the first. Well, how is that a problem? They liked your second one first better and you did a licensing deal? So, um so what, I think what you're saying is you've got another version you're worried about showing to them. Now, if they contacted you back because they were interested in your first version, talk about that one. When you get on the phone with them, talk about that one. And you you might say, look, I've got another version. If you want to see it, maybe that's a good variation. I don't see that as being an issue. But they're interested in the first one. They really want to move forward on that. Like I wouldn't bring that up on the first call. Maybe a little later, hey, I got this other version I want to show you. I don't think that's going to hose you up. Um, definitely not. I can't say specifically without looking at the product, though, of course. Um, let's see. That was from Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, uh, hello, Andrew. Daryl here. What are the chances that I can have footwear companies make a shoe that specifically centers for my product? Okay. So... I've had students license, you know, like shoelace things or accessories or things like that for shoes. But to license to a major shoe manufacturer is very difficult. I equate it to licensing it to um, a major automotive manufacturer. So you can license automotive aftermarket products all day long, but licensing to Volkswagen or to GM, good luck. It's very, very difficult. And the shoe guys are very difficult because you know, yeah, they're innovative in the way they design their shoes, but most of those companies, they're clothing companies. And clothing or fashion companies, they don't normally have to deal with a lot of patents. I know shoe companies do, don't get me wrong. But um, that's going to be really hard to license a, a shoe product. Um, I think it could be done. It really depends on what the product is, you know. Um, footwear companies that make shoes specifically centers for my product. I, I can't say without knowing what your product is. I can't say. Um, 
Uh, roaming tortoise. That's a fun handle. I have a product that is an improvement on another product. Should my sell sheet focus on the point of difference between the two or the product as a whole, which would overlap? It's an improvement on with the initial. You should just do a sell your product. That's it. And they'll know the other. We have always taught our students just to do a one-page sell sheet. But lately, Stephen, our other co-founder, has been talking about this, which he's, he's noticed some people doing this, and I think it's valid. You could have a second sheet that shows your point of difference, shows the competition in your point of difference. On the first page of the PDF, that's just a marketing piece for them putting your best foot forward on your product, okay? Now, if you want to have a second page which shows your point of difference in comparison to these other products, that might make sense, but you really need to make sure a professional does that and does that right. But yeah, that might make sense. Um, yeah, while he's saying, you know, we should always, when we when you do a contract, you should always do it under an LLC. And while he said he's not in the US and he's not a US citizen, so he doesn't need to do it. No, you, you don't. I mean. So in a way, just being in another country is a form of protection. So first off, I have never, ever had one of our students get sued by uh, because somebody got hurt with the product. So when you do a deal with a company, um, you're going to be covered under their product liability insurance, so a million or two million at the very least. And it doesn't cost them anything more to do that. So if somebody wanted to sue you, you're covered under their, their product liability insurance. Also, they don't even know you exist. They're not putting your picture on the package they know you don't have deep pockets the thought that they were going to go after the inventor would be so weird to begin with they're going to go after that big company okay they could and if you're in the united states and you 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 do an llc you're protected because you're you did the deal under the llc so if they sue you they have to sue the llc and if it's just a shell and you know you can just kind of throw it aside if you get sued there then you know, you're going to be much more protected. But Wally, your protection is you're in another country. Is some consumer that's trying to sue this company because it got hurt with the product, are they going to try to sue you in your other country? No. So to me, that's even better protection than an LLC. But I've never had that happen to one of our students. We have students doing ladders and knives and all sorts of stuff. I've never had a consumer go after um, an inventor. And I've never even heard from one of our students that, Oh, somebody got hurt with my product and now they're suing the company and now they're upset at me or whatever. Never heard that happen. So I'll leave the fact that you're in another country. To me, that's your LLC. That's that's your form of protection. Um, Margaret said to those who are on the fence about getting coaching, do it. It's worth every petty. Thank you, Margaret. She's a student um, of ours. Uh, Shar says, how much does a patent attorney cost? Depends on what you're having them do. What we advise our students to do, Shar, is not get a patent because there's something called a provisional patent application that anybody can write. I have students that don't have a high school degree and they're able to write it using our software that we give, give our students. And because you can read written in common English. And when you file a provisional patent application, it gives you a year. It's a placeholder for an entire year to say patent pending. And no company can see what you protected or didn't, which is a beautiful thing. And you can have an idea for a year. So I would recommend not going to a patent attorney. I recommend signing up for our coaching, get our solution to file the provisional yourself, and then we can show you how to license a product. Um, and then if you get interest from a company, we can show you how to get them to pay for the patent if they want it, if they want patent so bad. They give you an advance on royalties. You give that to your attorney. Your attorney will file a full utility patent and reference that provisional. So that is the smart way to do it. What most people do is go, well, my fans and family said it was a great idea, so I need to get a patent. And it's like, who told you that? Well, Uncle Joe. Well, has Uncle Joe licensed products before? So patent attorneys love this. They love the thought that every time somebody comes up with an idea, you need to go get a patent. You don't. If you go get a patent from a lot of patent attorneys, it's going to cost you 10 or 12 grand, Char. Wouldn't you rather spend $75 on a provisional than you got a year to say patent pending, and then you can get them to pay for the patent if they're in so that's a much better way to go. That's the invent right approach. Um, let's see. Let's try to answer some questions from people I haven't got to. Wow, I don't have much time left. Um, 
Uh, Melvin said, what do you do if you have a product that you know is awesome, life-saving invention, but no more money to promote, but you know you can save lives and make a whole lot of money? What you, what do you do with no blank? Um, crowdfunding, question mark? No, Melvin, you don't do crowdfunding. You, I did a whole YouTube video about crowdfunding. You're on YouTube right now. Watch my YouTube video on crowdfunding. If you go to our channel, it should be only like five, six videos down. It should be fairly recent. And that video will go in depth about how crowdfunding is not right for 95% inventors. And definitely where you're at is definitely not right for you. People go, well, I just need the money. That's all I need. BS. That's not what you need. I, I cover that in that video. So many of you are curious. Watch that video after the live stream and you'll really enjoy it. Um, so you do licensing. Because when you license, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. You don't need to raise money. And you just need to do a licensing deal with one of these big companies that already does products similar to yours. But watch my crowdfunding video, and you guys should watch it. If you guys are thinking about crowdfunding, watch my video. I'll go into it in depth about crowdfunding, why licensing is better. I'll just give you the end, why licensing is better. But I give you reasons. I'm not... I would have to sit here for another 10, 15 minutes to give you all those reasons. I already did a video on it. So go to the InventRight TV channel and you'll find it. Um, let's see. Uh, Daryl said, can we put our videos on YouTube as a marketing tool? Uh, no, don't do that. Do not make public disclosure of your invention, people. But... What our students do is they put it, put it up privately on YouTube. They put it up as an unlisted video. So there's basically three different types of YouTube videos. There's public, there is private, and there's unlisted. And most of you are probably like, oh, if I'm just going to send it to companies, I'm just going to make it private. No, that's not going to work. And here's why. You need to know their YouTube handle, and then you can share it with a particular YouTube handle. No marketing manager at a company knows their YouTube handle. So it's unlisted. So unlisted, when you upload a YouTube video that's unlisted, uh, Melvin, um, it's, it's essentially password protected. Only the people with the link you send them can find it. They can't search for it. They can't do a keyword search. Nobody can find it. Only people with the link. So when you have this big old long link and you send it to a marketing manager at a company, um, that's essentially password protected. They know they don't have to enter a password, but only they can see it. Now, anybody they share with can see it, but hey, if they want to share it with some other people in the company, that's what you want, right? So it's unlisted. So it is okay to upload a video to YouTube to share with the company, but you make it unlisted. Do not publicly post your idea on LinkedIn, a website, or YouTube, or anywhere else that's your on-bar public disclosure rule from ticking. You don't want that to do that, okay? Uh, let's see. That was... Oh, that was... Um, that was Daryl. Thank you, Daryl. Um, Paula, uh, Paula said, when you put a product idea in the cupboard or on the shelf for some time and the 12-month PPA downlight approaches, how do you retain and extend the PPA? You can't extend the PPA, guys. They're all independent. Now, when you start to reach out again for it, you could file that PPA again. You'll get a year from that new date. You can't extend a PPA. The only way you can file a full utility. So we have students all the time, their PPA runs out. They're like, oh, I'll come back to that. They're like, you know, I'm going to resend it out to a bunch of people and I'm going to refile a PPA for another 75 bucks. Literally, all you have to do is pay the 75 bucks again. And then you get a year from your new date. You can't extend that date. And, you know, yeah, you lose that original PPA date, but you can file a new one and get a new date in a year from that date. And I've, I've never had, we've, we, we have like four to 600 students at any point in time, guys. I've never had that bite a student in the butt. Could it? Yeah. If every time your PPA is about to run out, you're like, oh, I'll go to Mr. Patton attorney. I'll spend 10 grand because I don't want to lose my priority provisional. That's freaking stupid. You know, it might be right in some instances, but are you going to spend $10,000 to preserve your provisional date? And some attorneys will make you believe that you're going to lose your rights. And it's not true. Yes, you'll lose that date. But if you haven't made a public disclosure, you can file that same provisional again and get a year from the new provisional. So um, that was a great question, Paula. And yeah, are you taking some risk there? Yes. Is it calculated risk? Is totally like worth it 99.9% .9 of the time? Yes. Um, and if you just don't want to take that risk at all, go ahead, throw $10,000 at a patent attorney. 
you're not going to be playing this game very long if you keep doing that. Um, and when people are new with their first idea and it's their baby and stuff, inventors make those mistakes over and over and over again. It's like a broken record, guys. And so we're here to help you prevent you from making those mistakes. Uh, but again, anything I share with you today, as I said at the beginning, you consider legal advice. I'm not giving you guys legal advice. Um, so consult with an attorney. Um, okay, we hit the hour. Uh, I got to a lot. I got to a lot of the questions. So for those of you that didn't get to your questions and you're like, uh, hey, just get into the chat sooner and I can answer them. I got to most of them, but I couldn't get to everybody. I did a whole hour, guys. Please do me a favor. Um, click on the subscribe button below and click on the notifications button and like this video and all our other videos. That's how you can thank me for spending a whole hour of my time to give you completely free advice. And some of this is higher level stuff, mid-level, lower stuff. Um, and consider signing up for a coaching program. And if you're doing that, uh, go to inventright.com, click on contact us and book an appointment with Dana or Sylvia. They're both super friendly. You might be like, well, I'm not ready yet, Andrew, but I want to talk to them to know what's involved. Just go ahead and do that. They will not hound you or or follow up with you or, or hard sell you. We don't do any of that. So feel free to talk to them about the program and tell them Andrew said, I was on the live stream and Andrew said, I wanted to talk to you just to know more about it, and but I'm not ready yet. And let them educate you with how it works. And I'll remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.